These are being recorded. Um, part of the reasoning behind this, um, our, our pastoral staff and our session, um, your elders and your pastors, um, are thrilled at the, um, at the people that God is bringing into our congregation. It's very exciting. And, um, and, and the coolest part about it is that the people who are coming into our congregation, um, by and large, are outside of our tradition, which is what we want, by the way. Um, we, we don't want to fill uh, our church with a bunch of people who will amen us all day long and not challenge us. And um, we have a vision for what we're doing here to, to really impact the bluegrass. And so there's only so many Reformed Presbyterian people in the bluegrass. So we, uh, we're excited to see people come from other traditions. We just did a foundations class last weekend. And um, we had those who were coming from outside of our tradition raise their hand. And I think all but one or two raised their hand. So that's exciting. But the other side of that is um, your elders... Um, are burdened by all of all of these people coming and not understanding our practices, not understanding our distinctives. We don't force you to buy into everything to become a member, to join our fellowship. That's, that's nonsense. Um, the requirement of joining Christ's church is believing in Christ the Savior and submitting to His church. Um, but that doesn't mean we don't want you to understand what it is we're doing. And so part of it was, part of the thing that came up was, I don't have, Robert does not have a platform to teach our people on some of this stuff. Um, because we do expository preaching in, in Sunday morning, basically I preach what's up in Mark. And so this morning, you know, Jesus challenged the Pharisees, and that's what my sermon's going to be on. If we didn't do it that way, I could do a five-week series, Sunday morning series on baptism, and I could explain that. But we don't do it that way, and there's reasons why we don't do it that way. But at the same time, we really felt the need to have a platform to where I can do this. So what we're going to do is once in the fall and once in the spring, um, we're going to do a combined class here in the Fellowship Hall, and I'm going to teach it, and I'm going to teach it on some of our distinctives that, um, that we get questions about a lot. And this one is probably, honestly, maybe the question we do get the most. Um, what we have found, here's what makes us unique. We are a church that tries to honor the rich doctrine and traditions of, the, of our Reformed Presbyterian heritage. Um, and so we do church that way, kind of more like the mainline denominations. But what we tend to attract is people who come from broadly evangelical contexts. What I mean by that is um, non-denominational churches, uh, Christian church, the Baptist church, or even the parachurch world. We get a lot of people from the parachurch world, college ministry, campus ministry, young life, so forth. That's, that's who we tend to attract, but they come here and they find a church that's kind of doing church like um, the old historical mainline denominations. And that's where the rub is. Um, what we hear time and time again is people who come to us um, hungry for the preaching of God's word or for a community or for worship, whatever, typically draws them to the church. 
and you know they're getting familiar with us and 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 everything's okay um they're enjoying their time and then a sunday comes where we do the unthinkable and baptize a baby and um you know there is this a catholic church where am i what is this um and so i think at this point and i've heard this from people most people are faced with the question do i remain here for the reasons that I really love this church? Do I remain here and overlook this practice, which most certainly has to be untrue? Or um, is this disagreement so substantial that I need to find another congregation? Um, here's, here's what I would like to say, and this is where I'm going to go this morning. I wonder if that reaction has more to do with a cultural reaction, a cultural conviction than a biblical conviction. Um, this is huge. This is a huge part of the discussion, and honestly, all I'm going to talk about this morning. We're not even going to open our Bibles this morning. Um, we will the rest of the time. But, but this morning, we're going to talk about culture, context, and history, because I think this is huge to the discussion. Um, my man, my token Baptist friend, uh, I won't use his name, but he's been here forever, and he's obstinate. Um, <laughs> He's back there, and he said, you know, um, you know, we were talking, and he said, you know, if you were, do, if you were doing believer's baptism, it would take about five minutes to discuss, because it takes about a month to, to, to try to convince people. And I said, you know why that is? It's because that's the culture we live in. And you just stand up here and say, y'all know it's true, you, you baptize, you dunk them, you take them to the river and you dunk them. That's right, right? Amen, let's go. Because this culture doesn't have a category for the way we practice baptism, it takes a thorough discussion. Just like if you were planting a Baptist church or a, you know... By the way, I, there's really only one strand that practices believer's baptism. It is the Baptist church. There's been strands off of that. Um, the Christian church, disciples of Christ, and all that stuff. So when I use Baptist, please understand that's not a polemic thing in the sense of um, I'm not trying, I, I'm try, I want to be very charitable to our Baptist friends um, whom I love, and um, I, if I were to go to a city, and uh, if my kids were to live in a city, and there was a bunch of dead Presbyterian churches and a live, vibrant Baptist church, I would say go to the Baptist church, okay? So, I'm not, there's nothing loaded in this, but I'll, I'll continue to use the word Baptist, because that truly is where it's rooted. If I were to plant a Baptist church, or do Baptist theology in global context, or in any other historical context, it would take me a five-week lesson to try to defend it because what everybody else is natural to and used to is the way we practice it. So culture and context is very key, and that's what I want to talk about this morning. Here's what I want to do. I want us to see how much culture affects this, what is the, the current cultural climate of where we are, and then I want to broaden that out and just kind of look at a more historical, global context and history and Everything I say today, not one thing is going to prove that we're right in what we do. Not one thing is going to prove this doctrine. Um, what I intend to do today is to weight the argument. History doesn't prove anything. History is, is not infallible. God's word is infallible. So we're going to go to God's word and we're going to look at it. But history, it's not, just because history doesn't prove anything doesn't mean that history doesn't matter. It does. What history does is it weights the argument. If I can show you that, hey, listen... 99% of Christendom believes this, that all of our heroes of the faith believe this. Then it comes down to, okay, we, you've got to show me convincingly from Scripture that they've always got it wrong. 
I think that matters. So that's where we're going to go. Let's first look at our culture. And I want to I help you see why I think for some of you, and listen, I know for some of you, I'm just preaching the choir. But, but many of you, and I hope people who are listening to this recording, um, you're coming from a context that has no category for the way we do baptism. And I want to I help you see why that is. Um, and, and by the way, I certainly, I get that world. I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church, um, faithfully serving the tenets of the Bible Belt. Um, and you know what's paramount in that culture and context is believer's baptism. And I still get nostalgic at thought of gathering around the banks of the river and singing, you know, songs and old spirituals and a new believer professing faith in Jesus Christ and responding in baptism. Um, that was my childhood experience, and now here I am baptizing babies in my hometown. So what happened? Well, let me talk about that cultural weightiness. Um, American Christianity, particularly evangelical American Christianity, which is, like I said, whom we tend to attract, is largely a product of two converging philosophies, individualism and revivalism. That essentially forms the church that we currently know and inhabit. Um, And to put it bluntly up front, those two movements, individualism and revivalism, our our view of baptism and those movements are nearly irreconcilable. They don't make sense to each other. So first, let me talk about the, the, the philosophy of individualism, which is American. One is kind of an American philosophy that makes our practice hard to understand, and then there's a church culture that makes our practice hard to understand. Let me start with the American philosophy of individualism, um, which has no category for the way we view family and children. Every other culture and every other context, if you travel the world, does understand the way we view families. But our culture, which is founded on rugged individualism, does not understand the way we, and I think the scriptures, view family. According to America, the family is a group of individuals. Now, this individualism makes for a wonderfully productive society and economy and all that stuff. So it has its benefits. But I think it's a stumbling block in understanding what I think is the biblical view of family. If you were to ask any other monotheistic religion, um, which, flourishes, which flourish in cultures that are different than ours, but cultures that are much more akin to the biblical context. If you were to ask any other of those religions about the status of their children, they would unapologetically say that their children are born Jewish, born Muslim. And I dare you to tell them that they're not. Now, our view of the family does not take it to that extreme. We are Christians by faith in Jesus Christ, not by birthright. We believe that. Okay, So we don't believe that our children are born Christian, and then when we baptize them, that makes them Christian. But we also do not go to the opposite extreme and pretend that the parent's faith has no implications upon their child. But that is the American culture that we live in philosophy of individualism. America is a culture built upon this rugged idea that regardless of your family you are born into, you are your own individual, you are your own person paving your own path, and that philosophy has many virtues, but perhaps it comes at the cost of a God-ordained significance of the family. So the first stumbling block in understanding the way we practice, if you don't understand the way we view your fam- our, the family unit, you're not going to understand our view of, of baptism. So the first stumbling block is, our, is the American spirit of individualism which again has its benefits, but I think makes it hard to understand. But more importantly, and I'll spend a little bit more time here, more importantly to the discussion is the, is the church culture we inhabit. Traditionally, traditional mainline denominations, they don't have a problem with our practice. 
So when I say mainline denominations, the, 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 the Presbyterian church, the Lutheran church, and so forth, the Anglican church, they do not have a problem with our practice. It's evangelicals that have a problem with our practice. And I, by the way, I'm an evangelical. I love the fervor and, and, and zeal of the evangelical church. Evangelical Christianity is um, the product of revivalism, a movement in um, you know, the early 19th century. During the 19th century, a movement known as the Second Great Awakening took evangelicalism, which began really in the First Great Awakening with Edwards and Whitfield and all those guys, um, which kind of formed the evangelical movement, um, which was in its origins Calvinistic and Presbyterian. Um, the Second Great Awakening took evangelicalism down a different path, um, down the path of revivalism. And as an interesting aside, just so you know, um, as, and, and as a way of showing you how significant this is for us in particular, um, the epicenter of the movement of the Second Great Awakening is right here in Kentucky. Kentucky was the, the, where it all took off and where it flourished. And the Second Great Awakening was Arminian, dispensational, and Baptistic in nature. So, making my life exceedingly complicated as a Calvinist covenantal Presbyterian minister in Kentucky. Because I'm in a culture that's formed by those movements. And that's the climate of American, of, of American Christianity in the South, and particularly Kentucky Christianity, evangelicalism, and all that. The philosophy of the Second Great Awakening was embodied in the revival movement. Um, the meeting where the impetus was on a personal decision to follow Jesus Christ. Um, and this gave way to tent revivals, you know this, and then ultimately culminated in the wonderful ministry of Billy Graham, um, where people walked aisles and professed personal faith in Jesus and were baptized or rebaptized as a response, as a personal declaration. That's what baptism became known as, a personal declaration. I have decided to follow Jesus. And so believer baptism by immersion was so paramount to this movement that what happened is the practice of infant baptism became almost heretical in, in many circles. Now, I want you to hear, before I, before I critique this, I want you to hear what I, this. In many ways, not in many ways, I mean, almost in all ways, the American church the, 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 where we live are debtors to this movement. And certainly a saint like Billy Graham deserves our utmost admiration. Um, in fact, I often tell people, you hear this from me before probably, that the reason I continually have to defend my, my views of baptism is because Baptists have been so dang zealous and evangelistic in discipleship over the past 150 years. That they've literally created an entire culture. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. They've, they've created an entire culture of evangelicalism, which that, that's why I'm having to have this conversation so often. So thank the Lord for their efforts. That's how I was converted through a ministry of young life that's very much evangelical ministry. Um, and thousands have been converted and as a result of the revivalist movement. However, like every good movement, its strength is its weakness. And what happened, in my estimation, is that we became so enamored with walking an aisle and saying a prayer and being baptized that historical, biblical forms of Christianity and sacramental practices were just forgotten, even in some circles despised. And I say all that for this reason. We are kidding ourselves if we think we come to an issue as loaded as baptism without cultural presuppositions. It's crazy. I find many people, and this was true for me for a long time, who are unable to honestly consider the argument. 
to honestly consider our view of baptism and our practices because they're blinded by a culture of American evangelicalism, which is a great culture. But there in American evangelicalism, believer baptism by immersion is supreme. That's it. And, and, and Baptists would agree with me on that. If you go to Baptist church, this is the issue. This is the supreme thing. This is the big thing is to be baptized by immersion. So I readily, this is what I'm trying to say. I readily concede that our practices are a bit uncommon in the current climate of culture, of Christianity in our culture, but it hasn't always been that way. And this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. Any other culture, any other context, any other era of church history, our practice is normative. We just happen to be living in the only time, in the only culture where this is strange. So that's the context we live in. Let me help us see kind of the more historical global context of, of baptism and its practices. Um, listen, I'm a firm believer in the tenet of the Reformation sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. Um, I believe that. And the rest of our time, we're going to be in scripture. But tradition, the reason why I'm that is because tradition is fallible and God's word is not. However, what does, what, what this does not mean is that tradition is meaningless and should be ignored. When it comes to Christian doctrine, when it comes to Christian practices, if something is believed and practiced throughout church history, that does not prove it's true. However, it needs to be demonstrated beyond a shadow of a doubt that the church and all of the dear saints and all of our heroes of the faith that have gone before us were wrong. It's a big claim, and it better be absolutely clear in Scripture that all of them got it wrong, and the centuries got it wrong. I do not base my views of baptism on church history, but yes, it matters a lot to me that nearly every single person I admire from church history has held this view of baptism. In fact, that's originally what changed my mind. That's what caught my attention. Um, like probably many of you, um, the preaching and, and, and writing ministry of John Piper introduced me to Calvinism and the Reformed faith, and it changed my life. But then I started noticing something very strange. Everybody that Piper was quoting, um, except for the, his contemporaries, everybody that Piper was quoting, these great Puritans, the Reformers, um, even his love for the Catholics, St. Augustine, every single one of them held a different view of baptism. And that struck me as odd. And it caught my attention, and I began my journey in studying this and, and ultimately to the Presbyterian view. Here's what I discovered. And I'm going I'm to put this up here, and if you're a Baptist here, you're going to get mad at me. Um, but let me explain. Here's what I discovered as I looked at history. Our practice of baptism is 4,000 years old. Baptist practice, believer baptism, rebaptism is 400 years old. When I, when I start to, when I saw that, that, that mattered a lot to me. Either the church, and by church, this is my covenant view of scripture, by church I include Israel. Either they got it wrong for 4,000 years until some separatist movement 400 years ago finally figured this out. Or they've been practicing it rightly. Now let me explain those numbers. Um, we know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is undeniable, okay? 
You got, you got Christ and his apostles. Um, we'll, we'll take it at 50 A.D. We know beyond a shadow of doubt that at 250 A.D., this was the normative practice of baptism. Across the board. Undeniable. Nobody denies that. Cyprian, uh, Bishop of Carthage, wrote a letter about baptism in 250 A.D. Um, the controversy was whether baptism baptizing infants, um, but rather, it was a controversy he was trying to decide, but it was not over infant baptism. Um, and, and what he is, this is what he said, direct quote, baptism must be administered to both adults and infants. He was the bishop, 250, um, nobody denies that. This is the practice of the church. So, we essentially have two generations where we don't have much writings between Christ and his apostles in 250 A.D. Here are your two options. Either the reason why the church is practicing infant baptism in 250 A.D. is because it was inherited from Christ and his apostles, and that was the practice of the early church, or the grossest of heresies infiltrated and took over the church two generations removed, and, and, the, and baptism has been completely subverted and is being practiced wrong. So let's, let, let me, historically, let me look in this gap here and, 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 and share some things with you. Um, this was so compelling to me. Um, what happened in that 200 years? The earliest church father was a disciple of the Apostle John himself, Polycarp. You've probably heard that name. Um, Polycarp was 69 to 155. 155. So he was discipled by John, lived to 155. He was the earliest of the church fathers. We have nothing from Polycarp in regard to his views of baptism, the practice of baptism. However, he has one famous quote that you probably heard before and you didn't know is from him. Um, when he was being executed in a Roman stadium, just before his death, the proconsul pleaded with him. They said, swear allegiance to Caesar and I will set thee free. Reproach your Christ. And Polycarp, in one of the most famous martyrdom statements, said this, 86 years I have served Christ and he never did me any injury how can I blaspheme my King and Savior now? Now, first, may God give us such faith. Secondly, what's interesting, we don't know what he thinks about baptism. He didn't write anything. He's not left us any writings. But we do know this. He was 86 when he died. And the way he shared his testimony was, 86 years I have served Christ. Um, we don't know what he believed, but we do know this, that John the, Baptist, the, the man discipled by John the Baptist shared his testimony as though he had never known a day that he did not love and serve Jesus Christ. Not doesn't serve any, doesn't win any argument. It just points towards a covenantal view. Irenaeus is 120 to 202, discipled by Polycarp. Um, Irenaeus, likewise, we do not have preserved writings about his baptism views, but again, there are hints. Irenaeus speaks of Christ sanctifying infants. Setting apart infants. He, that's how he viewed Jesus, that he would set apart, sanctify infants. Surely it would make sense. We don't know what the, he thought the church should do, but I think it makes sense that if Irenaeus believed that Christ set apart infants, then likewise the church of Christ should do so as well. Tertullian is 160 to 230. Now, now the Baptists love Tertullian, and here's why. He is the, um, he's the according to them, he's the first um, to... Um, to speak out against the practice of infant baptism. But ironically, I think Tertullian um, actually um, is a good evidence for the practice. First and foremost, we'll say this. 
He's speaking out against the infant, and he's not really, but I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. If he's speaking out against the practice of infant baptism, then he's acknowledging that infant baptism was the accepted practice of the church at the time. He's speaking out against it because that's what everybody's doing. But he is not speaking out against infant baptism. He's certainly not commending a Baptist view of baptism. Tertullian got into this weird theology that essentially think, said that, that baptism um, is, is what is for the remission of sins. So he, he said this. He said, um, he said here's, what, here's what we need to do with baptism. Baptize them in the last moment so that all their sins will be forgiven. So if an elderly was on their deathbed, he'd baptize them. If an infant was on their deathbed, he would baptize them. It wasn't age thing. It was wait until the very last minute and then baptize them so that their sins will be forgiven. Clearly not true, clearly not biblical, but this certainly was not advocating the Baptist view of believers' baptism, credo-baptism, which is what it's called. Um, and even in his defense for it, it's, it he's saying that this is the, the accepted practice. So we know in this range just from his defense against it, that this is what the church was doing. Um, besides, you've got um, um, Hippolytus in 170, 236, so a contemporary, um, says, baptize the little ones. Um, if they can speak for themselves, let, they should do so. If not, the parents and other relatives shall speak for them. Origen, uh, 185, 254, same range around in here, uh, said the church, this is, this is compelling, the church received from the apostles the tradition to administer baptism to the children. Received from the apostles the tradition to administer baptism to children. Okay, I, I'm, done with, I'm done with the history lesson here. All, all of that, I'm saying all that to simply say, when you, when you study the ancient church and show um, and look at their view um, of the sacraments, and you see it being administered to infants... And don't forget, these are the ones who received instruction from the apostles themselves and who received, obviously, from Christ himself. When you, get, when you look at this era and you have to ask the question, did the church go wrong, egregiously go wrong, and baptism has been totally taken over by a heresy, or are they practicing it in 250 because that's what was practiced in the early church? When you look at the evidence, it's hard to make an argument that some gross heresy... Um, arose. And then by the time we get to the 4th century um, in St. Augustine, there's no abate, debate. This was indeed the accepted practice until this very day. Now, at this point, my Baptist friends will say to me, and they have, well, these early church fathers had a view of baptism that's not like your view. They had a view of, view of baptism where water actually cleanses of sin. Are you saying you believe in baptismal regeneration? And I would say, no, I don't. I think Scripture teaches we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. In other words, I think there is more than sufficient evidence to disagree with tradition at that point. But I don't think we have enough evidence. In fact, I think the evidence supports that we throw out the entire practice of baptizing infants, a practice that was inherited from the apostles themselves. Now, that was 2,000 years. Notice I said 4,000 years. Uh, that's 2,000 years, but don't forget that baptism is not the first sign of the covenant. It is not the first sign of salvation. There was another sign that existed 2,000 years before baptism, and, that's, and we'll get into that much more at a later point, um, where Abraham was set aside and the people of God are set aside for the first time 2,000 years prior to the Messiah, and, um, and clearly the sign was given to infants um, for those 2,000 years. So there is no debate whatsoever. Baptist, Presbyterian, nowhere is there any debate 
that for 2,000 years, without a doubt, infants were given the sign. Now, did Christ completely and radically change that? We'll talk about that. But my contention is this. 4,000 years of history behind this view. I know in Lexington, Kentucky, in 2014, it's strange for many people. We're a blip on the radar of church history. Could it be that for 4,000 years this practice being practiced, could it be that they were doing that for a reason? And that maybe our culture is off a bit on this. The Baptist practice, um, believer's baptism, credo-baptism, is 400 years old. Um, now, again, if you're a Baptist, you're, you're, you're ready to jump me. Um, I'm, not, I'm not arguing that there were no instances of believer's baptism by immersion performed in church history. There are. I am certainly arguing that it wasn't until 400 years ago that a group decided to make the claim that all other forms of baptism are invalid. That's what's recent. 400 years ago, a group of a separatist radical group said, infant baptism, all other forms of baptism are not valid. There is one and only one form of valid baptism, believer's baptism by immersion. By the way, I believe that's a valid form of baptism. They would say all other forms are invalid. That is a very, very new view. So is rebaptism. Rebaptism is a very new view. Um, and that's what the Baptists claim. And, and I'm, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not drawing a straw man there. That's what they would say. All other forms are invalid. That's a 400-year-old practice. So where did that come from? Um, the, the current... Um, there's debate. There's debate, even among Baptists, about the history of the Baptist church. But I will offer the most widely accepted view by historians. During the Reformation of the 16th century, so the 16th century was the key time um, Reformation happened. During that time um, of, of the Reformation, when the church was off in so many different areas, and there was this movement led by Martin Luther and others to reform the church, um, there was another movement that happened called the Radical Reformation. These were groups who were displeased not just with the Catholic Church, but with the, the Protestant Reformation as well. In other words, they didn't think the Reformation went far enough. It's a Radical Reformation. One of the groups involved in the Radical Reformation were the Anabaptists, which literally means rebaptize. Um, this was the first group who began to demand that infants who had been baptized must be rebaptized upon profession of faith. And uh, current Anabaptists would be like the Mennonite um, groups that, 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 that we see. Um, my wife married a Mennonite. She's a Mennonite. Love the Mennonites. <laughs> By wife, I mean my sister. <laughs> We're not Mormon. No, no... Uh, this is not a defense of polygamy. This is... All right. I've lost you. So listen, all right. So, so that, that was the seeds. The Anabaptist movement was the seeds of this. But the current Baptist church as we know it finds its roots in the movement called the English Separatists. After the launch of the Reformation, there was upheaval within the Church of England as well, the Anglican Church, as we know it, the Church of England. One group attempted to reform 
the Church of England. These are the Puritans. You hear that all the time, the Puritans. They attempted to reform the Church of England. Didn't, didn't work well for them, but that's what, that was their attempt. There was another group that separated from the church altogether, and these were called the English separatists. Now, the separatists were a radical bunch. They threw out all history, all historical practices, and they just started over with a very literalistic view, particularly of the New Testament, and deemed everything unbiblical unless they saw it right there. And it was there in the early 17th century that the Baptist church came into being about a century after the original Reformation, so about the 17th century. So the Baptist church was not an original strand of the Reformation like the Presbyterian church is. Okay, that's my little mini history lesson. But here's all I'm trying to say. The Baptist view, though common to us, is actually relatively new. When you think about church history, it's very new. That proves nothing. That proves absolutely nothing. But what it did for me as I started to study this stuff, um, what it did for me was open my eyes to the fact that maybe this practice that at the time I had no category for and I thought was the weirdest thing in the world and I thought only Catholics did this. At the time, I, I just didn't understand it. And then I started to think, well, maybe this practice isn't as weird and crazy as I had previously thought. Perhaps it's possible... <laughs> Go figure, perhaps it's possible that all these generations of Christians knew what they're talking about. Maybe, maybe the church throughout the centuries misunderstood the meaning of baptism, but if that's the case, I need clear evidence from Scripture that that is so. And I'll examine the evidence with you in the coming weeks, and, um, and I think you can, I'm going to show you that not only is that the case, but it actually very much supports our view of baptism. Now, I'm, I need to end with this. i got ten minutes. Let me, let me close with this. Um, there are some, and this is a part of, that, of the culture, of, of the Baptist culture, there are some that would see all that history that I just did, they would look at that and they would say, they would see that as a reason not to believe in infant baptism. When I began to study this, all this, on the one hand, the historical study was very compelling to me and eye-opening to me, but on the other hand, it actually further entrenched my views because I was so conditioned to be anti-Catholic. The Catholic Church was the boogeyman. And, and so it actually made me think, well, I definitely know I'm right because that's what they've been doing forever and they were all wrong. So I know I'm right. So actually studying history, for me, further entrenched my views at first. So let me briefly just speak um, to the Catholic question um, and to history question and its role. As I said, tradition matters, but it's not infallible. In other words, we don't practice our Christianity in a vacuum, disconnected from those who have gone before us, reinventing orthodoxy with each generation. But at the same time, we don't blindly accept the past as our only rule of faith and practice. So we don't practice it as though it doesn't matter, but we don't blindly follow it as though it's the only thing that matters. Rather, we are always reforming. We humbly stand on the wisdom of the old, and at times we courageously examine all things by Scripture and stand against it. There are times when Scripture clearly contradicts the tr traditions of the past. And it's there where brave men and women must stand in allegiance to God's Word and not tradition. And that's why I'm a Protestant. To be clear, I believe Catholicism obscures the gospel of free grace. I, I do not believe in papal authority. 
um, as liturgical as you know me to be. I believe there is a form of liturgical idolatry within the Catholic Church. I do not accept transubstantiation in the Eucharist. And speaking of baptism, I do not accept baptismal regeneration. Why? Why do I not accept these practices? Because Catholicism is, is always wrong in the boogeyman and I must reject whatever happens there? No, because I think in these areas and in others, clearly from Scripture, it's unfaithful. But at the same time, there's a lot of crossover that we need to be okay with, okay? Not to mention the creeds that we recite every single Sunday. <laughs> Bear in mind that the reformers were attempting to do just that, reform the church. They did not want to throw out centuries of wisdom and insight and practice. They actually wanted to recapture that which had been lost, namely the theology of men like Augustine. But the conscience of the reformers was bound to, not to tradition but to scripture alone. So when it was clear that the church would not move, they were willing to give up their lives for truth. And thus the Protestant Reformation came to be. But the one thing, there's several, but the main thing that they didn't throw out, and believe me, they would have thrown it out. The one thing they didn't throw out was this practice. Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, the great Puritans, none of them rejected this practice. And believe me, if it were unbiblical, they would have rejected it. They were not scared to stand up to the Catholic Church. So when it comes to doctrine and practice, just because it is shared with historical Christianity, including the Catholic Church, does not immediately mean it's to be rejected. To the contrary, Here's how it works. To overturn tradition, to overturn historical practices, it must be undeniably clear and strong from the Scriptures. I do believe, clearly, I'm a Protestant, I do believe Scripture gives us enough to reject many things in the Catholic Church. And that was, that's what makes me Protestant. But I do not in any way believe Scripture teaches that we should re reject the doctrine that has endured from Christ's apostles until now, um, the beautiful and significant practice of baptizing our children. Um, to the contrary, I believe, and, and, and hopefully I'm going to show, that Scripture actually clearly teaches um, that we are to do just that, that it's, it's, it's clear from Scripture that this is a biblical practice. Okay, I've proved nothing this morning, but hopefully in your hearts and minds I've waited it. What I, what I hope to do is, is kind of deconstruct cultural presuppositions and, and construct a new understanding of historical Christianity, whereas you're, you're, you're approaching this argument like this, not with my cultural presuppositions, but with this. This is what the church has always believed in practice. I've got to show that that was wrong from Scripture. And what I hope to do in the next three weeks is show you that actually it's right from Scripture. Okay? All right, let me pray. Lord, thank you for this time, and I um, thank you for your church. I stand amazed that it has endured through persecution, through heresies ripped asunder. Still you run your church, still you are on your throne, still you reign, and still you preserve your people. We are a small part of that, but I pray that we would do our part in honoring you in carrying on the great mandate of the church.
to honor and glorify and worship our Savior and to redeem the world. Lord, I pray that um, this issue, which so often in so many circles brings strife and tears the body of Christ apart, oh God, let that not ever happen in this church. Let it be done with humility and gentleness and understanding. May we love each other in our differences. And may you give us wisdom from on high, ultimately from your scriptures. I pray that you would bless the next few weeks as we open, our, open your word together and see um, what it is um, we believe about this most significant practice, um, the enduring practice of baptism in your church. And now, Lord, as we go to worship, I pray that you would transition our hearts and prepare our hearts to worship you in spirit and in truth. We love you, Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen. All right, guys, thank you.